out start from the beginning. Alfgeir Gunnarsson farmed at Gunnarstead near Underhofti Church in Ausfjord. His home field was nearly as large as the home field at Garda, where the absent bishop had his seat. He had another large field as well. From the time he took over the farm upon the death of his father, this Ausgare had a great reputation among the Greenlanders for pride. It happened that when he was a young man, he went off on the King's Pinar to Norway. When he returned to Gunnarstead two years later, he brought with him an Icelandic wife, whose name was Helga Ingsadatter. She carried with her two wall hangings and six white ewes with black faces, as well as other valuable goods, and for pride, folks said that Asger was well matched in So did you, why did you choose to, to begin it there? Well, first of all, I had read a lot of Icelandic, and one of the things that the Icelandic sagas are always about is conflict. It's about a conflict that tears the region apart as the people in the conflict get accrue more and more allies. And I was really interested in what happened in Greenland, and not just climatically. There was archaeological evidence that climate change, the end of the medieval warm period, resulted in a lot of conflict. And so I wanted to stick my story about the Greenlanders into the tradition of the Icelandic saga. And so Ausgare is a wealthy man. He has property. And so I had to locate him. I had to say what kind of property that he had. I had to say how he fit in with the rest of his patriots. And I had to give him a reason to, to fall, as it were. And the traditional reason to fall in all literatures is pride. Now, Ausgare is not, he's the property owner, but and he's greedy, but he's not the main character of the book, The Greenlanders. The main character of the book is introduced a little while later, and that's Gunnar, mm -hmm. the, the son, Ausgare, Ausgare's son. And so when what I if I want to talk about an entire place and I did want to talk about Greenland as a whole, you know, the Greenland colony in in the North colony in Greenland as a whole rather than just particular people, then I had to situate my characters in their place and I had to show how they relate to the place where they live. And so that's why I started with property owner and the father. Because in a lot of Icelandic sagas, the, the feuds are handed down from right. generation to generation. And this is true, you know, in a lot of places where they have a feuding culture. Like the property, the feuds follow with it. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's envy. There's envy about the property. There's envy about wealth. Um, and then times change and the environment gets more there, and it becomes harder to have the wealth that you thought you had, then the, the feuds become more intense, and the desire to strike back becomes more intense. That's why I started with Ausgare. 
you mentioned uh, climate change, and I don't want to skip forward to you know other your books, but um, it's funny to think about how that can be a conflict. I'm thinking about uh, ten days in the hills, or how certain conflicts can. Um, it's it always seems to be causing. It's again, it's the land, but it's an extension of that. evidence that Greenland ended, that North Helena and Greenland ended because of climate change. There had been a period in the medieval times between when Greenland was founded by the Icelanders and between then, which would have been in about 12th century, between then and the 14th century, 15th, early 15th century when things came to an end. That had been a warm period and so actually for Icelanders uh, leaving Iceland, Greenland looked really good because it was bigger. It had green fields, and in, in Iceland, all the best lands were already taken. And so they headed out. They discovered that here's this place that's pretty good. It, it's surrounded by. It's pretty far away, and it's surrounded by maybe less desirable properties. But there are some valleys and areas in Greenland that are very appealing. Now, one of the interesting facts about the Greenlanders as a group was what they discovered in the archaeological excavation, that they were taller and bigger bones than Europeans of the same period, and so they clearly had a better diet. They had a meat-based diet because of the hunting and also because of the sea mammals that they hunted and ate. And so they were the ones who sent luxury goods back to the Pope, for example. Mm. So that so they would send narwhal tusks to the Pope. And the Pope would think they were unicorn tusks. And they would send baby polar bears, you know, so so they were the ones then the equivalent of diamonds to the Pope. And that was viewed as their purpose. So in, in the late 15th century, at one point, about 1460, one of the popes turned around and said, hey, I wonder whatever happened to those Greenlanders. And nobody knew until the 20th century when it was discovered through archaeology what happened to them. And that always fascinated me. First, that they could have this pretty prosperous colony, but in what we would consider such an alien and difficult place, and second, that they could have it for such a long time, basically 400 years, and third, what happened to it? Where did it go? Mm -hmm. And it was pretty evident that climate change was one of the factors that did them in. Now, another factor that did them in was the change in technology when pirates who were based in Bristol, England, began raiding Greenland in the, and I may, they might have only done it once, but at least once in the early 15th century. The Bristol pirates had new technologies. They had metal weapons. They had ships that were more advanced. And so that was another thing that did the Greenlanders in, they, the new technologies on the part of the Bristol pirates. But, but mostly I would say they did themselves in. Right. Which is by not being practical or guarding or just staying there. 
no reason yeah. for that. They they saw no reason to go anywhere. I mean, in some ways, um, they were saved by where they were. Uh, for example, when the Black Death came around at the, in the middle of the 14th century, the Greenlanders never suffered from it and were amazed to discover that it had existed because the people who were infected, their sailors on ships who were infected with the Black Death, they couldn't get to Greenland. Everybody would die before they got there. And so they were saved by their distance from the Black Death. And of course, that was, that was from their point of view, that was a really good thing. Right. But they were definitely undone by their own tendency skewed as Nordic societies did in the, in the Middle Ages. And also to not be able to handle the change in the climate. And listening, listening to you, it seems that it, that must have been so fascinating to research. And in some ways, I feel like um, you're really a historian uh, in, in many of your novels. I mean, do you, you consider yourself a historian and a novelist? No, I don't consider myself a historian. I consider myself someone who's interested in history. But if you're going to write a historical novel, you have to fill in the blanks. And if has to be complete. It has to tell the whole story. And a historian can't do that. A historian has to acknowledge which parts are missing. Mm -hmm. And so historical novelist has to be as accurate as possible and do the best he or she can with the material that you can find. And I did try to find as much material as I could. But finally, you have to make a leap of the imagination and, and fill in the blanks and hope that it's plausible. Now, lots of times we look back on historical novels, and let's say I've been reading Ivanhoe lately. And, you know, one of the things that interests me is, is it accurate? But in the end, it's so interesting that I, I, I kind of don't care. And so yeah. I forgive Walter Scott for making being as accurate as a modern archaeologist would be about the 12th century. So if you're a historical novelist, you have to do the history as best you can, but your main job is to tell the story. And in order to tell the story, you have to fill in the blanks. And I'm, I'm wondering, as you often write about families and these multi-character narratives, and I'm wondering um, what draws you to that? What was your own... I don't know your, your family background, how large or, or small it was. Or... Well, I, you know, I'm interested in families. I had a, an interesting family. My parents were divorced when I was very, very young, but I had lots of cousins and grandparents mm -hmm. that I was involved with, and they were a very talkative and gossipy family. And lots of times they would gossip about one another and about the relationships that they had with one another. So that got me interested in relationships. But also, I don't know, how can you go through eighth grade and not be interested in relationships? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the friendships in eighth grade where your friends sometimes are nice to you and sometimes run away from you and sometimes treat you well and sometimes treat you badly. So... I don't see how, how a person can fail to be interested in relationships. At least I couldn't. So it just seemed automatic to me about relationships and family life and love and marriage. 
Yeah. I'm wondering, did you, would you want to read a passage now from uh, A Thousand Acres? Sure, I can read the beginning of that, too. Yeah. So this is the opening paragraph in A Thousand Acres. At 60 miles per hour, you could pass our farm in a minute on County Road 686, which ran due north into the T intersection at Cabot Street Road. Cabot Street Road was really just another country blacktop, except that five miles west it ran into and out of the town of Cabot. On the western edge of Cabot, it became Zebulon County's scenic highway and ran for three miles along the curve of the Zebulon River before the river turned south and the scenic continued west into Pike. The T intersection of County Road 686, perched on a little rise, a rise nearly as imperceptible as, a, as the bump in the center of an inexpensive plate. From that bump, the earth was unquestionably flat, the sky unquestionably domed, and it seemed to me, when I was a child in school learning about Columbus, that in spite of what my teacher said, ancient cultures might have been on to something. No globe or map fully convinced me that Zebulon County was not the center of the universe. Certainly, Zebulon County was one spot where a sphere, a seed, a rubber ball, a ball bearing, must come to perfect rest, and once at rest, must send a taproot downward into the 10-foot thick topsoil. Thank you. Um, so that's told from the point of view of uh, Ginny Cook. Uh, uh -huh. I, I was wondering if you would um, like to explain why you chose to situate it in her POV, and uh, because you had many options there. I thought that was just such a fascinating choice. Well, I grew up reading King Lear over and over in high school and then in college. So I think by the time I was out of graduate school, I had read it maybe five times. And every time, almost from the beginning, I always felt that the point of view of Goneril and Reagan were overlooked and demeaned. And I also never had much sympathy for Lear. Right. Because he just seemed to babble on and on and on and on about his concerns. Now, you know, I understood that maybe that was because he was a king, but he just he never got my sympathy, and I felt there was a backstory. There was a reason why the daughters, why he decided to hand divide the kingdom among the daughters. There was a reason why the older daughters, you know, they just had their point of view. They had their yeah. point of view, and I thought it would be interesting to delve into that point of view a little bit. Um, so I turned that over in my mind for a really long time. And then one day in the late 80s, up in northern Iowa, down 35 from Minneapolis. So there's this place in northern Iowa that is called the Pothole Prairie. That's a quite an interesting geographically. And it was late March, and it was kind of gloomy. And I looked around, and I said, you know, this is where I should set that King Lear book. And then, boom, it all came. So I wanted to explore 
the daughter's point of view. And I also wanted to talk about, so because I lived in Iowa, there are a lot of issues about farming that were quite interesting at the time. And so I thought it would be a good way to talk about both of those things. Now, speaking of your lack of sympathy, I don't know how much you'd like to give away for readers who might not have uh, read it yet, um, but your lack of sympathy for King Lear, uh, you actually added a big, quite a big backstory. Did you want to talk about that? Uh, no. Oh, okay. All right. Well, but I'll, but yeah. I, cause I don't want to say what it was. Yes, I sure. will say that one of the things I did when I was trying to decide what to do with the material mm -hmm. was I looked into the background of the play. So, first of all, you have to remember that I had been working, I had just finished the Greenlanders. So, I was in a sort of Nordic state of mind. Yeah. And I thought an interesting thing about King Lear was that it was a Nordic-style play rather than an Italian-style play. So it wasn't Romeo and Juliet. And so I felt there were Nordic influences there. So I looked into the background of the Shakespeare play, going back even into, like, six stories that were similar. And there were aspects that I picked up from the mythic stories that I felt were plausible with regard to the story I wanted to tell, giving the reason why the daughters would be so antagonistic towards him. It's hard to discuss it without giving away, but it's it's very it's a completely different take. It's very unexpected. So, and that just transplanting it to, to Iowa, and I, I guess we can talk about you know a bit of the how you mapped it onto their struggles with their farm and that sort of thing. But um, that doesn't give too much away, but I, I found it very fascinating. And then did you want to read a bit from 10 Days in the Hills? Oh, sure. Yeah. So one of the things that happened after 9-11 for me was that I started reading. I, I decided I, I just wanted to read stuff that was from long, long ago. Mm -hmm. So the first book I read was The Tale of Genji, mm -hmm. and I was amazed that even though it was a thousand years old, it was very up-to-date in discussion of the, the ephemerality of life, and so then I decided I was going to read more old, old books that I'd overlooked in the past, and one of them was The Decameron. Now, when I was in ninth grade and as a young, you know, teenager, I was fascinated by the Black Death, and my ninth grade paper at the end of the school year was about the Black Death. So that had always stuck in my mind as something fascinating. So now here I found this book, which takes place during the time of the Black Death. And then also because of the Greenlanders, I knew something about the period of the Black Death from the point of view of the northern countries rather than of Italy. So... Well, here I'm now I'm reading Boccaccio, and I decided I liked it so much that I needed to update it. Now, I wasn't the first, and I'll talk about that. So this is the first paragraph of Ten Days in the Hills, and whenever people say, why is there so much sex in it, I always say, well, Boccaccio made me. <laughs> Day one, Monday, March 24th, 2000. Max is still sleeping, neatly as always. 
His head framed by his rectangular pillow. His eyelids smooth over the orbs of his eyes. His lips pale and soft. His bare shoulders square on the bed. While Elena was gazing at him, he sighed. Sometime in the night, he had turned back the white comforter, which folds crossing diagonally between the hip and the knee. Morning sunlight burnished his hands, right on top of left. Hot, lay to one side, nonchalant. Elena smoothed the very tips of his chest hair with her hands so that she could just feel it tickling her palm, and then circled his testicles with her index finger. She was sleepy herself, probably from dreaming of the Oscars. What she could remember, more like recurring images of the bright stage as she had seen her seat, smiling figures walking around on it, turning this way and that, resting the audience suddenly as if something in her purse. Not unhappy images, but not restful. The bright figures that stayed with her all night, sometimes actually looking frightened or turning toward her so that she had to remind herself in her dream that they were happy, well-fed, successful. Thank you. I, was it fun? Excuse me not to be uh, lewd, but was it fun writing about sex so much? Absolutely. <laughs> I loved writing about sex. But let me say also that the intervening person who made me do it was Marguerite of Navarre, who wrote the book Cameron. So in the mid-16th century, right during the Reformation, the Queen Marguerite, who was the sister of the King of France and the wife of the King of Navarre, she got stuck with some friends in a spa down in the Pyrenees. And um, so she decided, she was a very well-educated person, and she decided that she was going to update that old book with the camera. And I had never heard of that. I had never heard of the Heptameron, which is her book, until I started reading these old books after 9-11. And I loved the Heptameron because she was so smart. And the stories that she wanted her friends to tell. In the Decameron, the stories that Boccaccio tells are updates of from sources that he has read. In the Heptameron, Marguerite of Navarre wants her friends to tell stories about everybody else they know. So essentially, they're gossip. And she also wants them to address what we would consider a feminist issue, which is, can a woman know true love and retain her virtue at the same time? And so that was the theme of all the stories. And I thought the stories were fascinating, especially in the context of the difference between our culture, where this issue doesn't even come up, and a Islamic culture, where this issue comes up all the time, so that we see this in both. In our world, we see one type of culture where a woman's virtue isn't even discussed. A woman is a woman. She does what she wants. And then we see another culture right next door where a woman's virtue is object of constant discussion. And that was one of the things I got interested in. And one of the reasons I wrote Ten Days in the Hills was to talk about 
what I felt was a pivot between culture we've been living in and the culture to come. Now, that's what I felt that the Cameron was. It was a book that took place at a pivotal moment, namely the Black Death. And I felt that Heptameron also took place at a pivotal moment, namely the Reformation. And so I wanted to write that book that was an update that also would take place at a pivotal moment. Now, one of the interesting things was that when Boccaccio was writing the Decameron in Florence, the great center of culture in Italy was Naples. It wasn't Florence. Florence was a kind of money-grubbing banking place. Yeah. No one at the time thought of as being culturally interesting. And one of the interesting things about Boccaccio was that he begged his dad to let him stay in Naples because he loved being there, because it was much more intellectual than Florence. But then there was a financial crisis in the family, and so he had to come back to stupid old Florence. And I think, for me, that, that split in culture was between, say, New York and Hollywood. And so I wanted yeah. to stick high 10 days in the hills in crass old Hollywood and not in, you know, very cool intellectual New York. <laughs> right. And and I like how you set it off, and you're, you're talking about that moment, you know, where it's going to war and... Uh, you know, even as you're you're pivoting, as you say, going be these these sexual scenes, these these friends talking, all their conversations, but it's very serious. I, I like that it made it charged for for me. Um, but I'm wondering, how many years did you spend in Los Angeles? You were born there, right? Yes, but I didn't I didn't live there. All right. Well, I I think we lived there for about a year, and then we moved to St. Louis. Oh, so it's a yeah, it's a foreign but country. Have, but I didn't live there, but I've been down there a lot because I live in California. Mm-hmm. And and actually, I was invited to a party. Gosh, I can't even remember who owned the house. But it was at the, the, the house was the inspiration because it was up in the hills and you could see the Getty from the house. I remember and that, the, the house you described. It's like that. You're being discreet, no doubt. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll say I'm being discreet rather than old. Um, but anyway, we did get invited to this yeah. house, and it, did, it was a fascinating house. And you could see the Getty, and it seemed, how could I not use that opportunity to set a book there? Yeah, well, the, I don't, you know, Los Angeles is a foreign country to, to me as well. So it seems... Um, you captured their ways. The house that they yeah. go to is yeah. made up. Oh, okay. The house that belongs to the Russians. Uh-huh. I found a place to put it, but it was based on, in 1990, what time was it? Was it 95 in um, October of 95 or 96? I was hit. The State Department sent me and a bunch of other people to St. Petersburg oh. on a little goodwill trip, and one of the places that we got to visit was the Summer Palace, and we got to see things like the Amber Room, and it really blew my mind, because what was happening in Russia at the time was that 
the Soviet era was was over and people were trying to get things back together, but they still had a lot of work to do. So that I'll never forget going to the Hermitage and all the paintings. Some of the paintings were just sitting on the floor, leaning up against the wall. Some of the paintings were all dusty. It was not like going to a Western museum where it was all very beautifully taken care of. Mm-hmm. And um, But then there were all these paintings that everybody had forgotten, Vermeers and stuff like that, that people had forgotten even existed because they had been owned by the Russians for such a long time and hidden from the West. So that was one fascinating thing. And then another time, another day, we were taken to the Nabokov estate. Oh, yeah. And the house on the Nabokov estate that Nabokov had grown up in, in any of, in any place in the West, would have been torn down. It was, it was entirely a wreck. It was barely standing. But it was still standing, and I realized that they have, they put it all back together. And so, it was really fascinating to go to the Soviet Union and see that see the Soviet Union at this transitional moment, this sort of combination of vast wealth and terrible neglect taking place at the same time. And the food was terrific. So I I really enjoyed going there. So when I came to write Ten Days in the Hills, uh, what was that like six years later? I knew that in the Decameron, they moved from the, the group, the group of ten, moved from one place to a more elegant place in the country. So I knew I had to move my my people from from a regular sort of Hollywood type house to a more elegant house. And there were a lot of Russians in the news at the time, and I said, okay, we'll, we'll give it to some Russian oligarchs, and, and then I can enjoy thinking about the Hermitage and all, and the Summer Palace. It's interesting. I'm just I'm thinking about the 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 writer's brain, this kind of magpie brain, and it occurs to me you need to, you're picking us these things here, and something you might pick up or might observe six years previous finds its way into a book and um, I don't know if we're ever aware of these processes but it's is it often like that it takes so long to germinate or resurface well there's lots of ideas and so it's not so much germinating it's it's things coalescing Mm -hmm. so I might have an idea about something and then for example the idea of of um thousand acres. Well, I had I had the idea that I wanted to write this, my version of King Lear, but it didn't come together until I realized where it was going to be set. And then I did research into that particular landscape and realized that this is a really good productive place to set it. With the Greenlanders, well, yeah, you know, I've been obsessed since I was a kid with the end of the world. Well, here was a place where the end of the world actually happened as far as those people were concerned. So let's do that, you know. And when, with uh, Ten Days in the Hills, I had read a lot of books while I was um, doing 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel. I'd read 100 probably like 130 of them. Mm-hmm. including Russian literature. Well, I loved Russian literature when I was younger. And I had especially loved 
looks like the nose. Right, go go yeah. <laughs> and and while I was reading for searching ways of looking at the novel, I read Taurus Bulba. Right. I can't I can't remember if I had read read Taurus Bulba before, but I loved it. I loved it when I was reading Searching Ways of Living with the novel. And I thought what I'm gonna do is use this as a way of bringing kind of Russian aspects into 10 Days in the Hills. And so the premise is that here the Iraq war is beginning and, and like people are gathering sort of to hide out from the Iraq war. But also um, Max is the director and some Russian oligarchs would really like him to do a movie of Tarasulba. And there was one of those, you know, long ago. There was a movie of Tarasulba with Yul Brynner. Ah, Yul Brynner, the bold Russian guy. (laughs) Yul Brynner was a big deal when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, Very mysterious figure. Yes, and and, um, he and his big movie was not Taras Bulba. His big movie was um, the, the King, King and I, yeah. which is which is one of my mother's favorite movies. And I saw that when I when I was about seven. And I first of all, I'd never seen a bald guy before. Yeah. But second of all, there was something very mysterious about him, and so. Um, so he stuck in my mind. He said, I don't know if you know if this has happened to you, but there are figures and, and images that you get in your mind when you say six and seven and eight. Yes. And those kind of stick with you. I think so, yeah. And um and anyway, um I thought he was a fascinating person. He had been in several movies that I had seen, so I had never seen Taras Fulba. Mm-hmm. But one of the interesting things about him, and I and I can't say when I heard this. I think it was. I can't say if it was after I was doing Ten Days in the Hills or while I was doing Ten Days in the Hills. But I happened to meet Ariana Huffington, and I was at her oh, yeah. house for a party. And I, there's nothing better to do at Ariana's house than to eavesdrop. And so I heard some people talking about Yul Brynner, and I heard them say that one of his jobs, in addition to being a Hollywood star, was to be a spy. As well. (laughs) That's what I heard, and I thought, oh my goodness. (laughs) Well, it made sense. He spoke so many languages, right? He was sort of a gypsy. Yeah. He was a very interesting guy, and I think he had a much more interesting life than people even realized. And um, so anyway, I so all of those things sort of came together when I was doing um, Ten Days in the Hills, and it made it lots of fun. I, you know, I loved writing Ten Days in the Hills. I loved, I loved Russian literature when I was a kid, and I loved Boccaccio, and I loved, the, I loved making fun of Hollywood, and, you know, it, it was just so much fun I could not. I loved writing all the sex. The thing about writing sex is that you... You get to do research? <laughs> well, you're always doing research anyway, but um, <laughs> it has to be idiosyncratic. Yeah. So 
So what you're doing is you're presenting the reader with two temptations. One temptation is a pornographic temptation, which is to just engage in the sex or with the sex. And the other temptation is to keep reading, and you want that tension to be there. You want the sex to be interesting enough to be erotic, but you also want it to be idiosyncratic enough so that it tells a lot about the characters. Right. Um, That's a good and, point. And you want, and you want the reader to just want to keep on reading because they're more interested in the book in a way than they are in the text. Yeah. So they have to read it again because they get excited by the, <laughs> and then they have to. Their brain is excited. They have to go back to understand what they were taking in. Yeah. So that was fun. I I I like writing about sex, but it was fun to me to take the Boccaccio challenge and um, and write a lot about a lot of sex. Now, one of the things that happened, one of the things that Boccaccio did. Um, was he wrote, rewrote a lot of ancient tales and updated them so that they were taking place in 14th century Italy. And then, so one of the things I had to do was to swipe a couple of his tales and update them. And so my favorite one, my favorite, I did that for six of the tales. And my favorite one was the Henry Miller tale. Now, Henry Miller came from he didn't come from around here, but he, he had a house not far from my house, maybe 20 miles from my house, down the, down um, Highway 1, around into Sur. And he likes sex, too, so I hear. <laughs> but anyway, go on. So I've been to his, I've been to the Henry Miller Museum, and um, I said, okay, so I'm, I've got to put Henry Miller in this book, and I have to take one of Boccaccio's tales and make Henry Miller, the character, and say that it was autobiographical. And my favorite thing that happened after this book came out was that a few years later, a Henry Miller biographer emailed me and said that he wanted to know where I heard about this incident, because he wanted to include it in his biography. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's made out of a <laughs> But knowing Henry Miller, it could have happened, so. <laughs> I don't know, but it did. It was straight out of a but it was lots of fun. Oh, yeah. So it was fun to play around with those things. Well, I love the connections that you make, you know, because it's it's fascinating intellectually at the same time, you know. You know, there's this physical, even pornographic element. So you're you're titillating us on all levels. Um, but and I also I want to talk also a bit a bit more about Thirteen Ways of Looking at a Novel because uh, I just I think it's such an interesting book. The challenge you set yourself, and you have all this practical knowledge, and not just theory, but you know, practical writer's knowledge. Um, what was why did you decide to to write that book or set that task for yourself?
some early novels, but I had never read, like, not just Tom Jones, but other 18th century novels like Pamela that I had never read. And I was stunned by how similar they were to one another. And I thought, okay, so what I want to do is write a book not about the greatest novels of all time, but about just the novel as a, I don't know, what is the nature of the novel? Yeah. I, always, I always say it's about the nature and anatomy of the novel. And for the more novels that I read, the more I realized that they shared a lot of things. And so that made me want to analyze what those things were. It just seems that you really highlighted how all these novelists are really in conversation with each other and, and building on each other's ideas. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Because most people who write start out reading. And so when you start out writing, you're actually a much more sophisticated reader than you are a writer. And so your writer self is a beginner, but your reader self has been reading, you know, for at least 20 years already or something like that. And then you keep reading, and so, you, so there's two of you. There's the reader self and the writer self. Mm-hmm. And they're all, and you're influenced by those books that you read when you were a kid. For me, the three that probably influenced me the most were books I read in junior high. Yeah. It would have been David Copperfield, Science in the Earth, and... The other one was a biology book about ecology. Mm. And so those books stick in your mind. But there's other books, too, like Black Beauty. Right. In my mind. And, um, oh, uh, I I love the Dana Girls and Nancy Drew and the Bobsy Twins. You know, all those books stuck in my mind. I was an avid reader. Right. so when I grew up and wanted to write a book, well, those were the things that I had learned from, even without knowing that I had learned from them. And you mentioned Black Beauty, because I, speaking of having, you know, the reader and your writer self, it seems like you also have sort of two lives, two passions. Uh, if you want to talk about your, you know, when you began horse riding and you own horses as well and. And you've written about horses, yeah. And I began horse riding, actually, there was a little pony ride place between where my grandmother lived, where I stayed during the day, and where my mom lived. And this was was on a little vacant lot on the side of the road, right at an intersection of two big streets. And... It was like a little maze, you know, a series of ponies. There were about five or six ponies at one end, and they brought you in, and they put you on the pony, and they strapped you in, and then they made the pony trot around the maze maybe three times. Mm-hmm. And I just could not get enough of it. I loved it. And so I became totally dedicated to riding, and nobody in my family could understand this because nobody in my family was interested in horses. And, but I read all those books, you know, where the horse is your best friend. And, mm-hmm. and I read Black Beauty, and I read other horse books, too. There were a lot of horse books, you know, horse book series. Mm-hmm. And so when I, when my mother remarried in 
stepfather had more money, I really wanted to take riding lessons, so they let me do that. And I met four, four or two girls, and pretty soon I was deeply involved. And I'm wondering, because um, I, I paint horses too, and I, I'm not, I don't know about... It's hard to do. If you can paint horses, that shows that, that you're good. Oh, thank you. And I'm just, I mean, I've been around horses, but I, I'm not as much as you. But I'm I'm wondering, do you, this may sound a bit silly, but do you, you must have a sort of sixth sense. I find that animal lovers often do. Um, I don't know if I have a sixth sense. I am an animal lover. Mm-hmm. I would say it's more, it's more that you are observant because you have to be. Yes. Uh, it's not exactly having a sixth sense. It's just being willing to be observant. Yeah. And so I, I've, I've been looking at horses you know, since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't mean I'm a very, I'm not a very good rider. I do my best. But I am sensitive to what their feelings may be. So that when people come out, when studies come out knowing that horses actually have I, I'm always saying, yeah, right, yeah, right. I mean, it's evident the more time that you spend with horses, but they're very observant. Mm-hmm. They have strong feelings. They have strong affection. They have opinions about who's the boss or and what they're going to do. Yeah. And, um, and they're each, all each different from one another. That's that's the thing I always like to say. People are all alike. Horses are all different. <laughs> so, um, uh, horses have fascinated me, and I've written a lot of books about horses and that have horse characters. And that's also been tons and tons and tons. Yeah, I mean, and again, I think to, to write, to make a portrait of a, a horse in words, not paint, that that's also very difficult to to communicate that because some things are almost beyond language, but you, you do that very well. Um, are there, what are some things that you get from writing that you don't get from fiction or do they, they complement each other? Do you sometimes think about what you're um, writing when you're writing or is it, how does that work? Well, you know, I, it's the same thing. If you're the thing, you know, getting away from the death, and onto a horse is, is relaxing and distracting. And so you might have been having some kind of conundrum at the desk, and then you start moving around, and the, and the solution to the conundrum presents itself. Um, it doesn't always happen, but it can happen. But um, for me, that's secondary to the inspiration that the horses themselves have supplied in terms of character and and that horses do fun things, you know. Horses race, horses go in horse shows, horses have relationships with one another. Horses can be live in the wild. So it's another world. It's just another world to explore and it's one that I've enjoyed exploring, I have to say. I'm wondering, you know, one thing we haven't talked about is uh, your Last Hundred Years trilogy. I know that's, it's like a lot to squeeze in, but um, uh, 
what drew you to I mean that must present so many challenges as well to to write over that period of time and you know what are some of the more uh, difficult challenges um, presenting a family over that time period So I'm wondering about you you going in and out of different centuries and time periods, and with that one, I guess starting where you maybe in the 1920s or 1950s, depending on what period. And what is that like when you're so immersed in it, and then you have to pull yourself out of it and just realize, oh, I haven't eaten today, or I have to do the shopping. I mean, I mean, how do you? I don't know. I imagine it's it's difficult coming back to reality. No, I don't- Yeah. 
Well, that's good. You have a health routine. And also, I imagine, because you were a, a teacher for a number of years. That's right? Yeah, and, I still teach at the University of California at Riverside. Oh, I didn't realize. All right. I thought, because I knew you were at Iowa, so. Um, yeah, so I guess you have a routine. You have your students. And um, what are some of the things that you get from teaching? Um, well, I, I get the pleasure of reading my students' work. I think my students' work is really interesting. And it doesn't matter how much of a beginner there are. Usually the students are original from the beginning. The question is becoming good, not um, becoming original. And lots of, and you know, there's, uh, there's the tortoises and there's the hares, and it's interesting to watch them develop. It's also interesting and terrific to watch them interact with one another. Right. We teach the method that I would say it's an analytical rather than a critical method. Mm-hmm. And so I try to teach them when they're talking about other, each other's work to talk about it in an analytical way so that the student whose work is being talked about can be interested in the conversation because it's informative rather than being afraid of the conversation because it's denigrating or critical. Oh, that's so important. Yeah. It's, there's, there's something good in everyone's work. As you say, they just need to make it more good. I know we've been at it. I've been I've been squeezing you. I don't mind going on, but I'm just wondering. There's just um, there's just some questions for the American Writers Museum. Can I ask them? And um, if would that be all right? They're just short ones. Okay. So, what are your views on the future of literature and with all the current conflicts, our future on the planet? I hope somebody told me in the future will be we won't even be using words. It's just be emoticons. But I I, I don't want to. <laughs> no, I think people like stories, and I don't think that I, I think that's an innate um, an innate thing that goes along with knowing language. So I I, I don't think that's true. I think people will continue to like stories. I I hope so too. But then maybe uh, make some very complicated emoticons. And um, what are your views on the establishment of the American Writers Museum and this creative process project we have um, and the importance of the humanities? I think 
think it's, I mean, I don't, I don't know too much about it, but I think it sounds great and gives people a place to go where they can kind of binge on writers and discover new writers and rediscover old writers and, oh boy, you know. Um, I think it's a great idea. Well, thank you. And then who in your childhood, for example, parent or teacher, encouraged you to read books and which one or two books do you remember most fondly? Well, everybody encouraged me to read books when I was a kid. Um, or let's put it this way, there was no discouragement. Right. Um, but I didn't really need any encouragement. Right. Um, and what was the second half of the question? I think you mentioned the one or two books you remember most fondly. Oh. Bye. Um, well, when I was really young, the first books I remember really loving um, were the Bob Dutton's books, but also the Black Stallion and other horse books. Wow. Um, and as I got older, um, uh, the books got more complicated. And, the, and so when I was in junior high, my favorites were um, David Copperfield and Giants in the Earth. And, oh, The Web of Life, that was the other one. Oh, right. That's a, that's a great selection. But it's, I just want to say it's been a real pleasure um, getting to know you a bit and, and getting to know you through your books.